0: And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman.
1: And a happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here. Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master, Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel. The guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com. All the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash Farmer Daily Garden Tips. Lots of snark. Uh, the uh, Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, where there was always a garden dialogue going on. Uh, yesterday, talking about um, <laughs> a yard I saw, sprinklers on artificial turf. Yes. Which makes sense if you have a sports field to keep it cooler for the participants, also to settle the rubber stuff that's uh, in there. to Wash keep, the dust off. Uh, wash the dust off, but uh, on a home artificial turf. Uh, no, no. Hey, Don Shores here from Redwood Barn Nursery. Good morning,
2: Fred. Good morning, gardeners. Yeah. Mike be-
1: Murray's here. He's running the board. Beautiful
2: day in the Sacramento Valley yeah. for all those gardeners out there.
1: Except for that excessive heat watch in effect from July 24th to July 26th, where temperatures will be around 100 degrees in Sacramento, 110 for our friends up in Redding, Red Bluff, right. and Chico.
2: 100 is okay. 100 is fine. All right. Yeah. Not too many of them. We've had great tomato set weather so far. Most people are coming in telling me that the temperatures in May and June, well, they're not telling me this. They're telling me they have lots of tomatoes setting. That's because the temperatures were great. Now the plants can grow a bit more, put some food, some sugars into those tomatoes. There's nothing wrong with some 100-degree weather.
1: What do you do at Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis at sixteen oh seven Fifth Street in 100-degree weather and all these plants in 4-inch pots?
2: We water We water, actually, I got that question. We get it from customers all the time. Smaller pots like that need water when we come in, again, midday, and we check them again before we leave. So the six packs, the the bedding plants, the four-inch color, the four-inch perennials, the quart pots, even some of the things in one-gallon containers may need water Twice a day on a day like that. And, and we, what
1: percentage of your customers still have those four inch pots sitting on a table in the backyard waiting to be planted?
2: I get the question a lot whether they should hold them and plant them late. Should I hold this until fall? And yeah. I think the chances of it surviving till fall in a container are much, much lower than the chances of it doing well if you get it in the ground. Right. Your, your watering is a lot easier in the ground. I do a lot of planting even during hot spells in the evening, 7 p.m. I'm out there putting things in the ground. I water them in really thoroughly. Even in that weather, I rarely have to water them again the next day because they're now in soil that's surrounding them with a good, thorough water. I just planted 18 four inch lavender plants over the last couple of days. Uh, They needed water about two days apart. And they're already, you can tell they're already rooting in and they're already getting established because they love this kind of heat. So there's nothing wrong with planting in hot weather. Right. Don't plant at 4 p.m. when it's 110 or whatever it's going to be. It's bad for the garden. It's not so good for you and not so great for the plant. But towards dusk is a great time to be planting. Just water thoroughly when you do and check daily water as needed. I say that. Let's right. try that again. Check daily water as needed is what we say through the summer.
1: When you water containerized plants, I'm talking about larger potted Mm -hmm. plants that people may have on their backyard patio, especially those in full sun. How do you know when that pot is fully hydrated?
2: When water is coming out the bottom.
1: What if water is coming out the bottom immediately?
2: Then you have a problem with your soil. It's become hydrophobic and it has either too much peat moss or too much coir, and you've let it go too dry. And that, ta- that takes some work to rehydrate it at yeah. that point, actually. As I'm just looking at a study on, on issues with peat moss and coir, and it may take several hydrations to rehydrate those when they become. Mm-hmm hydrophobic, a lot of hydra in there. Uh, When they go too dry, water runs off the surface and doesn't soak in. But in a normal potting soil, this is the simplest training thing for any new employee at a nursery is how to water. You'd think everyone would know, but they hear me say over and over, we're not baptizing the plants. We're not anointing them. We're watering the roots, not the foliage. We're watering the roots. And it means you stand there for two to three seconds for a one-gallon can. You fill it up. Stand there for five or six seconds for a five-gallon can. You fill it up and you count slowly to 15 for a 15-gallon can, you fill it up until water is coming out the bottom. And otherwise, every new employee does the same thing. They're just kind of washing the leaves off and barely getting a little into the pot. You need to water until water is coming through the bottom of the pot.
1: I like that little rule. Yeah. Five seconds for a, a five gallon. And, and the head you're using to water them is a, like a
2: shower it's head. It's called a soft rain nozzle, yeah. which puts out a, And you can wash the leaves off. Uh, this comes up all the time. I've heard you are not supposed to get water on the leaves in the sunlight. It'll magnify oh, yeah, the yeah. rays and burn. The, that's a complete myth, just yeah. so you know. If, if it were true, we wouldn't be able to operate a garden center because we water every day and we right. wash the leaves off almost every day. Uh, we use what we call a soft rain nozzle. But yes, it breaks up the flow. So it flows into the pot very gently and we fill it up. So it's, the, the harder one to remember is the three, count to three for a one gallon, five for a five gallon, mm-hmm. Fifteen for a fifteen-gallon, and that takes longer than you think to water a whole long row of fifteen-gallon trees.
1: One hippopotamus, two hippopotamus, right. three hippopotamus.
2: Right. <laughs> all the staff out there, Mississippi one, Mississippi yes. two. Yes, all right.
1: <laughs> but that's how I mean. That's how I water my pots at home. Right. If it's a big container and...
2: like a oak barrel, it's yeah. going to take almost a full minute actually to get it properly hydrated. That might as well be on a system of some sort. Once you got up into bigger containers like
1: that, I like to frighten my neighbors by uh, watering my plants uh, on the patio there and and basically shouting out one hippopotamus two hippopotamus (laughs) (laughs) they think i'm hallucinating
2: genie need to talk to him again (laughs) (laughs) yes
1: really (laughs) all right hey got a garden question give us a call 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255 email sure send it to fred at farmerfred.com and uh in in all that mess we were just talking about i think we should emphasize the point it's going to stay hot all week long yeah uh Temperatures near 100 or over 100. So, water judiciously.
2: So, your tomatoes are not setting fruit right now. So, this was a question I dealt with the other day. I saw a blossom this morning and it just fell off. Yeah, 90 degrees is an important temperature threshold for self pollination of tomato plants. There should be a bunch of fruit on there already. We've had really great pollination weather up until now. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also plenty of time left. Uh, you, You can get, last year was a good example, it was a hot summer. We had a spike of hot weather in late June. We had all of July in the month in Sacramento was above 90. And we had a spike of high temperature in the first of August. And then we got back to normal fluctuations of higher and lower and higher and lower. And most of us got excellent crops of tomatoes in early October uh, because the August set ripened in October. You know, the old 49 day rule that I learned from a organic farmer out in Yolo County once. She said it's 49 days from blossom to pick. 49 days from pollination to when the fruit is ripe enough for her to take to the market. And that's seven weeks. Well, that's about right for early types and figure eight to 10 for some other varieties. But if you've got nice weather in mid-August, which we often do have nice weather for pollination here, you'd be picking those in late September, early October. We have great weather for gardening all the way through October here. And everyone here has the experience of picking tomatoes, you know, for the Thanksgiving table and sending a picture to their friends on the East Coast. Oh, just went out and picked some tomatoes for my salad. Oh, you're not doing that back there? (laughs) I just made the mistake of opening up my email to see that any
1: questions came in. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, People taking issue with your answer about sunflowers. What's eating my sunflower leaves? Mm -hmm. And uh, three people have written in saying it's the finches or the tanagers.
2: Could be. That's true. There are some birds that do damage in the garden. All right, I stand okay. corrected. <laughs> <All right. laughs> it seems unlikely, but it's possible. Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, White crowned sparrows are another bird that can do some damage in the garden.
1: And uh, Kathleen points out, it's finches that are eating the leaves. My dog also eats the lower ones.
2: So Your dog.
1: Dog. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's a dog you got to be careful with then. All right. But everybody's is is respectfully disagreeing with you. Thank you. All right. So so there's that. Wow. I don't know what it was you said. That was it. <laughs>
2: I jumped right on caterpillars. <laughs> yes,
1: really. Yeah. No. Well. Okay. So finches. Yeah. They're they're always hungry for. There are something.
2: very few birds that do damage in the garden. Now, the white crowned sparrows can really drive you nuts, but they're a winter winter garden pest. They can decimate a planting of peas or lettuce uh, in short order. And of course, I had problems in years past with magpies coming along mm-hmm. and pulling up little seedlings and doing damage yeah. to them. So no, nope, I'll, I'll take that one. Tanagers and finches, sure. Yeah.
1: So, and Kathy also has a question. Is it normal for the sunflower leaves to gradually die starting at the bottom and working up the stem? I see that new leaves often begin at the place of a dead one, but they never get more than an inch in size. What's going on?
2: It can be normal. It also can be a sign that they're not getting enough water. Sunflowers use A lot of water when they're growing them in Yolo County in the fields out there, they're flooding them heavily right on through the bloom period and and until they're at their and just past their peak of bloom. So it may be a sign of drought stress. That's certainly possible, but it is normal for almost any of these plants to grow very vigorously in the summer. We get this all the time with tomatoes and pumpkins and squash. These are vines in their case. In the case of sunflowers, a very fast-growing annual crop and If there's a slight deficiency of nitrogen, if there's a slight deficiency of water, that would be one thing they would probably shed the older leaves first.
1: It Uh, seems that the heat doesn't bother the zucchini.
2: (laughs) No, well, it's interesting. The production does kind of drop for a brief period typically with, really? with some of them. Yeah, well, this is one thing people come in and tell me that they're having trouble with zucchini and they feel chagrined because they've always heard yeah. zucchini should be easy to grow. If it's very high temperature, you won't get real good pollination on it. But I guarantee there'll be a, another fine crop at the end of the season, so don't worry too much about it.
1: Exactly. All right, got a garden question? Give us a call, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email fred at farmerfred.com more with don shore from roadwood barn nursery when we come back to get growing on talk 650 kste and kste.com
0: you're listening to get growing with farmer fred talk 650 kste here again fred hoffman welcome back it's Get growing
1: on Talk650, KSTE. I had to think for a minute where I am. Don Shore is here. He knows where he is. Yep. And you know where you are. Uh, I imagine that you, as a nursery owner, must pull out what hair you have left. I mean, you have a good head of pretty hair. Pretty good right? head of hair, yeah, still, you have a pretty yeah. Good, congratulations yeah. Yes. on that. Uh, when you see an article in the paper espousing plants mm. that you know do not work here, do not grow here, you do not stock here. Yes. And then people come in and say, ah, oh, you got a witch hazel plant?
2: How about a Father Gilla? Um, Father Gilla. Yeah, the the local media, I don't want to criticize print media because they're having tough times, but most of them have gone away from having a dedicated staff to the subject of gardening. It's one of the first things to go, it seems, is the the actual lifestyle things that mm-hmm. would require some local expertise. And if there's ever a subject that really requires local input, it's gardening. Uh, Wire service stories on gardening, which are popular with some print media, are either so generic as to be pretty useless, or they get this whole long list of plants or suggestions, and I'm reading them going, where was this written? Oh, Connecticut. Um, And so there's an example in a paper named after a small insect that's a pollinator about plants that attract small insects that are pollinators to the garden. The irony was not lost on most of us, which listed a whole bunch of plants that were from, I think, a Washington Post byline.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the standard joke now about the garden section in the Saturday Sacramento Bee, it's the Washington Post garden section yeah. because they're using a lot of articles from the Washington Post syndicate. And it's written for a very local Washington audience, especially yesterday's, called Know Your Blossoms, Court the Honeybees, and that's a great idea. Bring in plants with nectar and pollen for the bees. Encourage a bee population and then they go through the list of plants that do well in Washington, D.C. and the right. surrounding area. Right. And plants that you may be thinking, why are they talking about those plants when there's all sorts of great plants here in California? Yeah, they are
2: mentioning witch hazel and winter, winter sweet and father you know, These are plants that I literally have never actually seen in a garden anywhere in the Sacramento Valley. It's quite possible someone out there. Is growing those things yeah. but there they would not be anywhere near my list of plants for bees I'm happy to see people planting to draw pollinators and we should yeah. emphasize not just honeybees which are not even native here but uh, bumblebees and other pollinators you know things like butterflies and so forth we have two outstanding resources that could be provided locally one is the UC Davis Arboretum mm-hmm. you go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu and there's a list there that a little little printable Handout that shows ten bees. Get to know these ten bees for this area, and a whole list of plants that will attract them. And even more detailed, if you can spell Häagen-Dazs ice cream, wow. <laughs> if you can, if you can go get the Häagen-Dazs yeah. out of your freezer and type that into Google, and then put garden you'll come up with the UC Davis Bee Garden.
1: Which, you could probably just Google that for us.
2: Uh, it actually is beegarden.ucdavis.edu, okay. which is pretty easy to remember. Yeah, it's but easier it was than Haagen-Dazs. originally funded by Haagen-Dazs, and they have yeah. a cool garden out there, way yes, west do. west of the campus. Surrounded it's by up, concrete. Mm-hmm, out in the middle yeah. of nowhere, and it's, a, it's open to the public. You can go by there. Nobody would be just going by there. It's uh, on the way to the Primate Center, if that helps. But they also have these great resources online, Okay, just to wait a minute. Suggest- they still
1: have a primate center.
2: Oh, yeah, it's still out there. Wow. You cannot go to that. But on the way out towards that, they do have the Haagen-Dazs Honey Honeybee Haven. I know yeah. the folks that run it, and it's an actually a fantastic resource. And on their website, there's something called resources. You can click on that and look, there's bee gardening resources, including yeah. an Excel version of the Honeybee Haven plant list and a whole bunch of plant lists and suggestions of, of things that'll work well, including the one from UC Berkeley and recommended low-water bee plants, and that's a great list. It's got various sages on it and ceanothus and redbud. California poppy, you know, a lot of native plants on here and a lot of things that are not native, like some of the nepetas and the germanders. These are all things that draw bees. Uh, I'd like to mention a couple of other sources.
1: Sure. Uh, You mentioned uh, the Urban Bee Institute at UC, at the University of California, Berkeley. And they've done a fine job of putting out a great website with all sorts of great plants. And uh, then there's this thing called the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page.
2: Oh, that guy, yeah. Yeah,
1: and if you click on the link at farmerfred.com, Called Bring On the Bees. Mm -hmm. It'll take you to a post I, I, I wrote about a year round garden for pollinators, and it's a season by season guide to the plants that grow here yeah. that will thrive in that particular time of the year.
2: Some might be perennials for a regular, you know, normally watered garden. Some might be yeah. for a very low watered
1: yeah, garden. Yeah, you know, that's one thing that people make the mistake of when it comes to bee. They think, oh, it must be flowers. Well, it can be shrubs. It can be trees. Mm-hmm. It can shrubs be perennials. Shrubs that have flowers, right?
2: Yeah. Things that bloom. And this is really the key on all of these sites. The one I'm looking at from the honeybee Haven has it by month of bloom. Mm-hmm. So you want to get things blooming every month. Yes, bees, not yeah. not the honeybees, but there are bees out in January and February.
1: So my and, guess on that list for the longest stretch of continuous bloom, say May through November, might be California buckwheat.
2: Sure. Yeah. sure, And a lot of the daisies, Santa Barbara daisy yeah, right. is on this particular yeah. one I'm looking at. Uh, and it's incredibly easy to grow. Uh, and there's lots of uh, the catmint group, the mm-hmm. Nepeta, yep. not catnip, but the cat catmints. Have a very long bloom season. The salvias, I mean, once you just start with the genus Salvia, you have things blooming almost every month of the year, and they draw not just honeybees, but also the bigger. More interesting, bumblebees and carpenter bees, and hummingbirds. There's a lot of overlap between the things that draw bees and the things that draw hummingbirds. There
1: are spring-blooming salvias, there salvias. There's summer-blooming salvias. There's so. fall-blooming salvias.
2: Commonly called the autumn sages. There you go. Yes, yeah.
1: And so choose a variety of yeah. them when you plant those. They are very dramatic and, I think, excellent plants. And
2: this actually, by the way, goes for butterflies as well. You just mm-hmm. plant things that bloom. Make sure your garden has something blooming mm-hmm. every season. A really good way to do that is go down to a local retail nursery, any month. And if there's nothing blooming in your garden, buy something blooming at that yeah. month and take it home and plant it. Are you familiar with the Proven Winners Lo and Behold Butterfly Bush? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a
1: low-growing butterfly there bush. There
2: are several, yeah. There's a bunch of new butterfly bushes that yeah. are compact growers, the Buzz series. Uh, those, these are Generally, those are in the three to four foot range, right. lo and behold, yeah. likewise. These are also, by the way, sterile. Uh, that's an issue for any of your listeners in the Pacific Northwest, because up there they've the butterfly bush has become uh, sufficiently receding to the point it's a listed invasive plant. Wow! Yeah, so now they've, there's a whole lot that are sterile. Mm-hmm. And in general, they're great for uh, butterflies, of course, and also hummingbirds. But the, these newer ones are, have a much better place in the garden. They're more compact growers.
1: Another great plant with a long seasonal bloom that attracts a lot of butterflies is lantana.
2: Absolutely. And that attracts the little skippers. My mother was an avid butterfly collector. So she she did. She had a huge butterfly yeah. collection. She was the kind if she, if mom saw a butterfly, she would kill it and and mount it. So you were often cautious about running in, going, "Mommy, mommy, there's a beautiful butterfly in the garden," because she would go out, catch it in the net, crush its thorax, and mount it. So it was a little disconcerting for a little boy what you, sometimes. What
1: do you use to crush the thorax of a butterfly? Your thumb
2: and forefinger. Th- so and, you just squeeze it. Yeah, yeah. And, and where is the thorax? Uh, it's the middle part. The middle part. <laughs> and you, and then, then you... You sp- don't want to damage the wings. No, sometimes. of course not. And then you flash. She had an extensive collection of butterflies. And mm-hmm. she liked lantanas because they drew skippers. Mm-hmm. And a skipper is the easiest way to teach a young kid how to catch butterflies. Yeah. Skippers and blues. There's you can the catch wings. them with your hand yeah. if you want to. But you know if you're trying to show them how to use a butterfly net, you yeah. go up to any lantana bush, there's going to be skippers and blues all yeah. over them, and they're easy to catch, and the kid who's even maybe three or four years old feels very accomplished.
1: Okay, welcome to the How to Kill a Butterfly show <laughs> right. on, on KSTE. I don't
2: recommend killing them. I recommend enjoying them, but, you know, all right. that's my upbringing.
1: Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Steve in Yuba City, thanks for giving us a call.
3: Hi, Fred, Don. Hi. Uh, I'm growing a uh, uh, French tarragon, ah. and, and I was told, or I recently read, that, that uh, they they use sulfur heavily. And I wanted to add sulfur, but I didn't want to increase the acidity. So what's the suggestion there?
2: Can't th- why would why would you be using sulfur on French tarragon? I've always found it pretty easy to grow. So well, do- I'm not
3: having any trouble growing it. Okay. I just wanted to make certain I didn't deplete this. I'm growing them in large pots.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I've never had an issue with it. tarragon is in the Artemisia genus, and it's a tough, tough, tough little plant. So I don't know that you'd really need to add any sulfur. I'd have to know more about what you think you might be running out of on it. Mm.
1: That's um, a very slow acidifier.
2: Yeah, and, it, and, it, and they don't need that. They don't yeah. need a low pH, so that's not an issue anyway. I think if you're concerned about just keeping it well-nourished, any good plant food would probably take care of it, and there's plenty out there that contain small amounts of sulfur. I know this will sound odd, but your citrus food usually has extra sulfur mm-hmm. added, so if there's a reason you want to apply some extra sulfur, that might be the way to feed it. Um, again, not sure what the exact goal is here, because my experience with, with uh, tarragon is, I just plant it out in the garden, not in containers, and it's out in the sun and it pretty much takes care of itself. So I don't think it has any special nutritional needs.
1: The only thing fish. I can think about when it comes to plants in containers is how quickly the nutrients can be washed away every time you water. So it may be that a case of Yeah, it may be a case of you have to fertilize more often, cut the dosage in half and do it twice as often.
3: I'm using fish emulsion and I'm, you know, not adding a lot, so it's, it's not really a a big issue, I guess.
2: If it's growing fine, I wouldn't worry about it. I can't think of any deficiency that that sulfur would be a real issue for. So, yeah, container growing anything in containers, you have to augment the nutrients yeah. periodically. There's a fish emulsion is a great way to do that uh if you're (laughs) i mean it's kind of pungent (laughs) some people object to the smell but it is actually a very good organic fertilizer i
3: both love it yeah
2: yeah i I love it too i love
1: the smell of fish emulsion in the morning
2: if you're getting complaints about it you can shift over to say cottonseed meal or something that's going to be a a good organic but i don't think i'd be concerned about the sulfur i I would probably not think of any particular reason to, to apply that
1: steve thanks for the question we have to go here Bye. All right. Bye-bye. We'll take a short break. More Get Growing on the way on Talk 650 KSTE.
0: Folks, it goes with that. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman.
1: Welcome back to the program, Fred here. Don Shore is here from Redwood Barn Nursery. He's been chomping at the bit <laughs> to talk about... Drip irrigation. Yes. Many
2: of you have and drip irrigation systems in your properties. Yes. It's the way to go for lower water use, and it is the most efficient way to water. You have drip irrigation yeah. on the whole place. For or decades. On your yeah, oh, no, it's, on, it's everywhere. I'm on a farm, 13 acres, and all of my orchards are on drip, and all of the all the vegetable garden is on drip. Every day at my nursery, uh, like every retailer, we answer questions about plant problems. Mm-hmm. And a uh, recent Saturday, as I do about once a month, I just jotted down real quickly a note about what the plant problems were for about two hours. So I came up with about 35. That's fairly typical on a on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? And I noticed that about every fifth note was problem with drip system. Problem with drip system. Right. That's my my code for... Uh, all the panoply of issues that people were having with their irrigation systems. And I will say on behalf of the landscapers out there, it's not your fault. Many cases, they simply don't understand the system you put in for them. So before we even discuss the problems with drip, I would like to suggest that if you're a landscaper or a landscape designer, one of the last things you should hand to the customer, you hand it to them as they hand you your check, is a binder or a manila envelope or a thumb drive that contains the manual operating system for the timer and all the technical data about the drip irrigation materials that you installed. Because one of the most common questions, the first thing we're going to ask is, how are you watering? How often? How long? Many people don't know. Uh, all right. Well, there,
1: there's a lot of variables
2: to that. Right. There's a yeah. problem right there, but they may not know exactly how it's running. And then the next is, well, all right, you have drip, this new underground systems or tech line or Netafim, either you said another one, Hunter has one. Yeah. Uh, these are where the the emitters are in the tubing and it's buried and Mm -hmm. it's on a grid pattern through the yard. Do you have any idea what the output is? Are they half gallon hour, one gallon hour? Most people don't know. Of course not. It's buried. It's buried and they, and they didn't have the technical information. So if they have that, it makes a better starting point for discussing why the leaves on their maple tree are burnt. Or why their vegetables aren't growing so well. Or why the citrus is scorched looking on the south or west side.
1: Why is this one area of the lawn always wet?
2: Or the one area of the lawn browning badly. Uh, Those are generally sprinklers rather than underground drip, but still it's the same issue. And so the, the fundamental problem is that most people don't really understand their systems. But a very common answer is, well, we're running it every day for 10 minutes. And one of my staff people finally asked after someone left, he said, where in the world would it rain 10 minutes every day that you'd be planting low water plants?
1: Hilo, Hawaii.
2: <laughs> and what, what are the plants that are adapted to 10 minutes of rain a day? Um, you know, I couldn't really think of any place where you'd be planting drought tolerant plants where you'd get 10 minutes of rain a day, five mm-hmm. minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. Many of these systems were devised for agriculture. And they were devised for a system in places like Israel or, you know, places in in the desert where they each day would replace the plant's water use either for the previous day or predicted for that day or whatever. I mean, absolutely the most efficient way to water where water is precious. Every drop of water matters. And that's great. But it, re- it assumes a couple of things. One is that you've calculated that correctly. And the other is that it distributes well through the whole root system And that everything is about the same. In an agricultural crop, everything is about the same. In your vegetable garden, you've got vigorous vines like tomatoes, and you've got little plants like peppers, and you've got pumpkins running all over the ground, and you've got cucumbers. And and non-uniform soil. uh, Generally speaking. And you're you're not exactly the same sun exposure through the whole thing. A common conversation is why are the plants right along the driveway not doing as well? Well, the calculated ET rate that they use to set your timer, I know I'm lapsing into jargon here, but the point is that near the driveway or near a south-facing wall is hotter. It's drier. Yeah. It's going to need more water in that area. And your system may have not have been designed for that purpose. So
1: ET systems that are up there on the CIMIS system, when, when you hear somebody say, yeah, we had uh, two inches of ET this past yeah. week, which yeah. is, by the way, what it was, yep. those measuring devices are usually in turf.
4: mm
2: mm-hmm
1: in an area that is not surrounded by concrete. It's a good size piece of turf.
2: They're calculated from your nearest weather station in some cases. Now, the biggest problem that I see is that most people are are troubleshooting based on visible plant problems, Mm -hmm. visible plant symptoms. How do you determine when you need to water?
1: Well, I have a moisture meter. There you
2: go. I, you're I, checking the soil. You have a screwdriver, right? You're checking the soil. You, you're going out. and You're not looking. You're not waiting for the plant to droop before you water. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with you know, having an indicator plant here and there, but in your vegetable garden, if plants get to the point of wilt, they're going to yield as well, right? I mean, you won't. It, it's not good for the plant to be drooping between waterings. So checking the soil. Well, that's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, it takes a, a moisture meter. That's a good quality moisture meter, or you take a 18 inch screwdriver or even a bamboo pole and just push and see you know how far that goes in how readily mm-hmm. and how, whether the last watering was effective so uh, th- so the first issue is that the et rate in your yard varies on the site i mean that, that's a technical term but it means that all the aspects all the exposures are not identical monitoring should be done for the soil not the plant when is the best can. time to monitor Uh, The day after you watered, the next day. As
1: long as you're not watering every day.
2: The other thing about those agricultural systems, they were based on the assumption that your soil started at field capacity, which means you saturated everything and let it drain out, and there's Mm -hmm. plenty of available moisture stored in the soil, which you're then replenishing each day.
1: The unscientific translation of that is when you grab a handful of that soil, it will form a clod in your hands, but you can still break it up easily.
2: So a simple diagnostic, uh, a simple solution to a lot of these problems I see where there is clear, they're just not putting on enough water and they don't want to change the timer. They don't want to call the landscaper back. He's already tired of them. (laughs) They're having these problems. Go home, turn on your system by hand. If you can do that and let it run all afternoon, once really saturate everything and then turn it off and go back to what you've been doing before for a while. And if you do that once a month, uh, something like that, every few weeks during the summer, resaturate the soil, bring it back to what sil- soil scientists would call field capacity. One, the trees will thank you because they aren't getting enough from that drip system for sure, and you'll have that margin of error. You'll have that stored moisture in the soil, depending on your soil type, but for the most part you can do this. And you'll be able to go back to the more frequent watering that is often done with drip. I don't personally use a drip system ever on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Mine is a couple times a week for the peppers and eggplant, once a week for the tomatoes. That works for my soil. You're in planters, raised beds, you may have to do it more often. I right. think you're watering almost daily. No, three times a week. Okay.
1: Unless it's 100 degrees and then I manually turn it on.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so you're giving them an hour of water three times a week and really yeah. saturating them thoroughly when you yeah. do. Uh, So the biggest problem I see is people just are not putting on enough water. And one of the simplest answers to that is just water longer every now and then, if that's Mm -hmm. the easiest thing for you to do. Learn, you know, your timer, your smart timers are amazing. These things are just phenomenal. Some people have ones where they can go out, it's hotter, they can just go, okay, I'm going to set this at 110% because the ET rate is higher this week.
1: That's calendar, though. That is, they're computers and it's based on data and it's historical data. And so that historical data may not reflect what's actually happening.
2: Also, knowing how to turn your system on by hand is actually really yeah, yeah. important. Find the manual <laughs> yeah, button. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, knowing how to just run it through a cycle. You know, for yeah. a lot of people, there's a real simple way on their timer they can. I'll just run it through one more cycle. You know, just yep. a little extra water. When you hear that we're going to have a, a heat a, a heat event, what are we talking? Calling it on um, the
1: a, uh, excessive heat watch.
2: Yes. Well, obviously, yes. plants during that situation will be using more water, or especially when the wind is blowing. So when we have a north wind event, the ET rate on that day is particularly high. And then the other biggest problem I'm running into with the low, low, low water landscapes, where people are putting in native plants or non-native but Mediterranean irrigation rainfall type plants. The emitter right close to the plant, covered with mulch, running frequently, and the plant's mysteriously dying very suddenly during There's the no summer. There's no roots there. Phytophthora, crown <laughs> rot. They, if you, if you, the only way you're ever going to get Phytophthora on a plant here in the Sacramento Valley is if you have moisture around the crown, mm. and that's what we call crown rot. And it takes very high moisture for several hours for that to actually happen. So it would never happen in nature here. We don't get monsoon rains in, in California generally, and they don't, we don't get the duration that they get. In
1: Imperial Valley, they do. Right, okay. and, and
2: southeastern California. Yeah. And in fact, Tucson last summer had six inches of rain in July. That doesn't happen here. I mean, We get 0.05 inches in July. Somebody told me yeah. it
1: rained in Davis last week.
2: Briefly. Okay. Yes, we had. And, and that was such a weird phenomenon. We're all yes. standing out there marveling at the little tiny bit of rainfall that, that came down. So the drip emitter right close to the plant with mulch up against the trunk, mm-hmm. if you have a planting of 20 plants and two of them die abruptly and mysteriously in hot weather, it's almost always... Phytophthora crown rot because of moisture trapped at the crown. And it's usually a drip emitter is right at the base of the plant. Pull the mulch away. That'll probably solve the problem. Don't water daily, and that'll definitely solve the problem.
1: I had a problem with a pepper plant. I had several pepper plants in in a row. And this one pepper plant just had a tough time growing. Every afternoon it was starting to wilt. Mm -hmm. So I was giving it water. And I go, well, obviously, life is too short to put up with a problem plant. Let's do a little uh, CSI on this. Autopsy. A a little autopsy (laughs) and figure out what's going on. Dug up the plant. And sure enough, the root ball is just going round and round in circle like some idiot who planted it did not scrape out the roots. Break them apart and and spread them out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who that idiot was. But (laughs) anyway, that was like I say, life is too short to put up with a problem plant. Let's. Something else in there.
2: Well, whether it's the vegetable garden or the landscape, zoning the plants by their water use is important. Yes. So, your peppers need Hydra water zone. more frequently than your tomatoes. And yeah. in, in your landscape, you know, the shrubs and trees from one area that are yeah. low water plants, they're usually your landscaper hopefully, you know, looked up whether what their landscape coefficient is 30%, 50%, 70%. That's technical jargon, but mm-hmm. it's you sort your plants by how much water they use. The best example I give typically is a Japanese maple. Yeah. Blood good. Show a picture of that. Show a picture of a smoke tree. Same size, smoke tree uses a third as much water as a Japanese maple. Darn,
1: I was hoping you would say m Wheelo. I had that on my bingo, my Don Shore bingo card here.
2: (laughs) Zone your plants and water more deeply. Uh, You need to water more, folks. That's really what it comes down to. Not more often, please. Overwatering is a term we use that we shouldn't use in the industry because it sounds like too much water Mm -hmm. It's too frequent water. Overwatering means watering too often, keeping the surface too damp. We need to water more deeply for almost anything, whether it's a vegetable or a tree. But especially for woody trees and things like that, occasional deep soaking is, is really important. We lost a lot of trees during the drought. And, and then they,
1: there are those who would disagree with you. Yes. Yeah, I'm just saying that yes. there are
2: people out there who are promoting a,
1: a day-by-day use of drip irrigation. You know, if you want to do keep- that
2: fine, periodically run the thing for that that re- to bring the soil back to field capacity, as long as you do that, it does work.
1: Well, they're saying that you can keep it at field capacity by only giving it a bit of water each day after that soil has achieved field Yes, capacity. if you've
2: calculated correctly. Yes. If you've calculated it. correctly.
1: The people I know are using excel sheets. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll get to your questions. Give us a call, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email. Send it to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Garden Grappler, by the way, at 11 o'clock. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. And the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. It's Get Growing
0: on Talk 650 KSTE.
2: Hi, it's Kitty.
0: You are listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Don Shaw from Redwood
1: Barn Nursery in Davis. Are you going to work today or what? Yep, I'll be there. At noon?
2: Yep, noon to well. I'll be there a little after. A good staff will open at noon when we open, and I'll be there shortly thereafter, depending on traffic. Where is there? 1607 Fifth Street between L and Pole Line in downtown Davis. The building is a barn. You can't miss it as you drive down Fifth Street. What's in stock? Oh, crepe myrtles look really nice. I still have some vegetables, interestingly. They, Yes. And I have all kinds of herb plants in right now. And we bring in the subtropicals, the ones that people ask about that we have to have nice long conversations yeah. about.
1: If I had known that, I would have asked you to have brought me a pepper plant. Ah, yeah, <laughs> we,
2: we continued. I mean, I, I was joking the other day. It seems like we could actually sell tomato plants year round. We have people coming in. Yes. Oh, I, something happened to my cherry. Do you have any cherry tomatoes? Well, it just happens that we got in a couple flats late on in the season from yeah. the grower and shifted them immediately into one gallon in the fantastic Recipe 420 potting soil. I don't know if you've used that one. Oh, yes. Amazing response on that one. Yes. The plants look great. We have them at a good price, and they are interesting little cherry tomatoes.
1: Yeah, the uh, soil you mentioned is from Ellie Cook. Yep. Uh, no,
2: from uh, from E.B. Stone. E.B. Stone, I'm yeah.
1: sorry. I know it's something with initials. Right. Ellie Cook is no longer with us. No longer with us, us unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they are in, to, in, yeah. to a certain extent. The bare supplier. No, E.B. Yeah. Stone e. has e. Stone, his
2: recipe e. 420. You can figure out what market they're aiming for. But, we... but
1: it, for those who are leery of that, they call it Ultimate Recipe. Yeah, same which,
2: thing. Yeah. Well, so you can it, buy it in a different it, bag. It, it's close to it. I think there it's, is. Like it's probably the richest potting soil I've ever. Seen. Yeah. It's a premium price for sure, uh, and there's a it's, I can't remember whether it's bat guano or seabird guano or mm-hmm. both in there, and mm-hmm. crab meal. And when you take a plant that's been sitting in a four-inch pot for a while in a nursery, and you shift it into that, it greens up right away yeah. and starts growing. And it's actually an excellent second-stage transplant mix for all of your vegetables, as well as what they're marketing it for.
1: I pondered for a while filling up all my raised beds with it.
2: It's very uh, high in coir, uh, so you might run into hydration issues yes, at some point. Yeah. I, if I were doing that, I would blend it with something else a little faster draining. But,
1: all right, let's yeah. go to the phones. People, are, people want answers. We can make them up. Okay, uh, Where are we? Roy in Citrus Heights, welcome to Get Growing.
5: Hello, gentlemen. Hello, um, Roy. Calling about a problem with a semi-dwarf peach tree, a couple, couple of years in the ground. Uh, purchased it from one of your uh, various sponsors. That
3: mm,
1: okay, good, we good have good various trees. sponsors, and we appreciate yeah, those various sponsors. Yeah, I forget which one, so mm-hmm. I
5: don't want to name <laughs> the wrong guys. <laughs>
1: I appreciate that.
5: Down, down at the bottom, there's a red, crusty, I don't even know how to describe it, but it it seems to have attached itself to the root, or it's or it's being secreted by the yeah. tree as some kind of a sap, self-defense yeah. thing.
2: Sap, yeah. resinous yeah. material. Yeah.
5: Is yeah, it is this in
1: the ground?
2: What is this in the ground or in the container? It's
5: right at the edge of the. It's right at the edge of the ground where the the roots yeah. start to go off in search of. Uh, Water or whatever okay. and, how does the tree uh, look how does the tree right look otherwise the, the base of the tree and mm-hmm. the roots that I can see above the ground I planted it the way you guys described mm-hmm. you know the roots slightly above ground level and uh, it you- was doing well, healthy looking leaves and stems, but now I notice I'm afraid that maybe I've got scale I'm not sure though because I'm no expert but it's a reddish-brown spots that begin to appear on the surface of the stems.
2: Well, if it's scale, and, uh, it'll rub off. So yeah. that's, that's a simple diagnostic. Go over and rub your finger on it. Scale is an insect that is stuck on there, but it comes off. So that, okay. that one's pretty easy. Yeah. And if in some just, cases, will wash off. Yeah, in fact, the, one of the simplest ways to deal with scale is to just put a good, strong yeah. nozzle on your hose yeah. and vigorously rinse it. That may not be it, then, yeah.
5: this is very, obviously right under the layer. Seems it's, to be uh, creeping up the tree. It's oozing. it's oozing. It's oozing. It's
2: oozing. It's oozing sap is what it's doing. Are these and-
5: vertical cracks? No, there's no cracking. It's just a. It starts to turn reddish brown instead of the bright green uh, color of the the healthy stems coming off of the main branches, and then uh, then the reddish brown begins to just seem to grow larger and larger and envelop the entire layer then the then that stem begins to look unhealthy, and the fruit that I have on there starts to shrivel and look oh. unhealthy as well so i don't that's when I, I needed to know you know am I battling a a fungus infection or is it a some kind of under the layer bug of some kind
2: well if it's an, if it's a borer that's gotten in there once again, you put on a glove, you rub your hand on the area, and the bark uh-huh. will flake off, and you 'll see some sign of something having tunneled in there. You might see frass. You might see frass mixed with resin. uh, But you'd see some evidence of a point of entry, and that's one issue. Whereas if it just seems to be seeping, there's a whole bunch of reasons that Mm -hmm. fruit trees put out sap. Uh, One of them is bacterial canker disease. Others are just mechanical injury from having hit it with a weed whacker whacker or or some animal coming along and doing some damage to it. So what you're going to do is you're going to take a close-up picture, and you're going to mail that to Fred. Uh, so he can look more closely I, at it. How
5: about this? Uh, yeah, what, what address would you like me to use for that, Fred? I've mailed you pictures before, well, and you've given me good answers. There you go. I can make it. But I up. forget which address was the best.
1: Fred at farmerfred.com yeah. works. I would recommend you actually snip off an infected branch that's part healthy and part sick. Yeah, that might help. Take it to your local nursery and have them take a look at it.
2: It sounds like you have possibly, if you want to look this up, uh, the IPM site at UC Davis, bacterial canker. And you can look that up, and you'll probably see some pictures on there of how that progresses up on the, the cambium and can do some yeah. pretty serious damage. You're Like talking a about pseudomonas the, on a peach? You're talking about, well, you could have brown rot higher up. Yeah. I mean, that can also be an issue. So the thing is, there's so many reasons that stone fruits ooze sap that it would be challenging from your description. Yeah. But I don't think you're describing an insect infestation. I think you're describing either mechanical injury or a disease problem. So that should narrow it down a little bit for an you.
1: An abiotic disorder,
2: perhaps. Could be.
1: Yes.
5: So, oh, yeah. yeah. So this all is really right. it's, uh, this is going to take had eyes. Tree that, that got this, and I uh, I cut off all the infected wood, and I, I treated it with a multiple uh, antifungal, anti-this, anti. And I don't like doing that because I'm more. I tried to yeah. stay organic. This was a shrub, so I wasn't worried about Usually, food.
2: Usually copper of, of yeah. some sort is going to be what you're going to look at, but let's make sure yeah. that's what it is. The IPM side of UC Davis is a vast resource on this kind of thing. All this right, is I'll why
1: I want to sell farmer Fred holy water. There you go. Yeah, all
2: right.
5: <laughs> Thanks, you <Yeah, for> <laughs> There's been no me- mechanical damage, yeah. so I'm okay. fairly confident that isn't it. I'm okay. starting to lean your way on some kind of bacterial yeah. canker or yeah. viral infection uh, thing. Uh, the bark doesn't rub off. Okay. And that, yeah, then uh, you're getting the more towards brown, a more like towards a pathogen, most likely. And then, and then, uh, yeah.
1: Roy, we got to go here. We're out of time. Okay. Thanks, Roy. Thanks. All right. The, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd still wonder. I'd like to see if there's vertical cracking on it. Well, too, mechanical injury sunburn is actually yeah. a very common thing yeah.
2: that causes. Then after the sunburn, you do get that kind of yeah. seeping or, or oozing. Yeah. I remember at one point one of your frequent guests, Pam Bone who was on the show, rattled off eight different things that can cause fruit trees to sap or ooze. and Mechanical injury is one of the most common ones, but we can broaden that to include sunburn or damage to the bark, which can also include, by the way, small animals causing some damage.
1: We have to take a break for news. When we come back, it's garden grappler time. We're going to put Mike to work in the control room because we have four people on hold with questions, and maybe I'll let them play along too. Okay. All right. So we'll okay. do that. we are just going to keep Mike busy. The Garden Grappler I and the clue does not work at farmerfred.com. It does work at Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page though. Ah, okay. It's Get Growing on Talk 650, KSTE. Hey, Mr. Wor-
0: Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All
1: right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet if you're up on your irrigation methods. Don Shore is here from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis. He will be the official judge and hanging jury for today's competition. Mike, are you ready in there? He's nodding his head trepidly
2: with trepidation with, with trepidation thank Trep- trepidatively. you yes. yeah, trepidatively we did have some questions there of people online who wanted to yeah. ask us about
1: uh, well they're still on hold okay. and we will answer their questions and if they want to participate in our little game here we go they can So don't hang up yeah and in the meantime you may want to google the phrase irrigation tool or irrigation method and and look at images and then you'll know what we're talking about here name an irrigation method by the way be specific yeah Don't say sprinkler. Don't say drip irrigation. What sort of sprinkler? What kind of sprinkler? Not a Mm. manufacturer, but the way they put out water. Drip irrigation, same way. The way they put out water. They all have different names. So drip irrigation is just sort of an umbrella term for all sorts of little implements that accomplish low water delivery systems.
2: Will we wait for that? You had mentioned your neighbor needs some counseling.
1: I'll get to that in a second. Okay. All right. So. All five callers get a prize, special bonus price for caller 5 in the Garden Grappler. Again, name an irrigation method, but be specific. 916 576 1578 or 866 331 8255. Name an irrigation method, an irrigation tool, be specific. And you people who are already on hold with questions, stay there, think of an answer. We'll give you a couple of minutes to think of an answer while I. Talk with Don here. Yeah. Yes, Don, my neighbors need help. I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, you know I, I in my evening walks with the dog, my wife has discouraged me from offering unsolicited advice. I guess in the twenty first century, that's called mansplaining. Yes, and apparently it's frowned upon these yes, days. I, so I hear. Yes, I'm learning all sorts of <laughs> yeah. stuff now in the twenty first century. Just going to century. retail, Fred. That's what we do on a
2: daily basis.
6: Yes, <laughs>
1: Right. So anyway, I'm I'm getting you know criticized for mansplaining, and uh, but I, I'm not thinking about trying to show that i know more than you it's not that at all it's about i'm concerned about the health of that plant i'm concerned about your tree i'm concerned about your lawn and so now i've switched from discussing this with the neighbors to having you discuss it with their landscapers there we go as far as when you install a tree should that single nursery stake be removed
4: when
2: do you want me to answer that one Yes, (laughs) that yes, <laughs> that's an easy one. Yes, you remove the single nursery stake, and you put in generally two stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can go online and you can look at pictures for how to stake a tree. There's great resources: Sacramento Tree Foundation yep. and others, Davis uh, Tree, other places will show you how to stake a tree. A couple of stakes perpendicular to the direction of prevailing wind. You mm-hmm. can back up, and you don't want the north wind battering it against the stake. So you, yeah. you would generally run them east to west. Find the point of the bend, tie it there to eat both stakes. And what does Um, this do for the tree? How does this improve the tree? The tree needs to move, and that single stake that the nursery left on there, the tree can't move. It's intended to get the tree looking like a tree. I wish they didn't feel they had to grow them that way, but there is an expectation the public has for what a tree is going to look like when they buy it. There won't be lower branches on it, so Mm -hmm. they've removed those. They've trained it up, and they've headed it to make a leader. So you now have to make it go back to its more natural condition. It would be in the wild where it moves in the wind, and that thickens the trunk, and you gradually have to train it to being able to stand on its own.
1: Think of the wind as the gymnasium for the tree. Okay. <laughs> it's helping it build muscles.
2: What it's actually doing is releasing ethylene gas, which is the uh, the plant hormone that causes the, the trunk to be thicker. Okay. So if you look at a tree that's out in the open, out in a field, you'll notice it has much more taper than the same species of tree close in with a bunch of other trees around it, where it'll be narrower and straighter. That's because it's moved more out in the field, and that movement has caused the trunk to thicken up and make that taper. So you need to stake it for a while, but you've got to, take the, you've got to check the stakes seasonally mm-hmm. and remove them as soon as you possibly can. Now, I live in a windy area. So I will frequently decide six months in, the tree looks like it can live on its own without the stake. I'll snip the ties off. Stakes, plural. uh, Two stakes, correct. I'll snip the ties off. I will see using the the stress test if I rock it back and Mm -hmm. forth and it appears to be fine. I'll often leave the stakes in for a couple months while I wait for our next windstorm Mm -hmm. to make sure it really was ready to have those stakes removed. But generally speaking, six to nine months, unless it's something that isn't really naturally a tree like a crepe myrtle. In which case, they've gone to the extra step of staking it up and making a head. may take a little longer for that to thicken up. But usually not more than a year. Shouldn't be more than a year. If All that's right. correct.
1: Aggravation number two. Okay. <laughs> Most of the lawns in suburban purgatory now in our area are some sort of cool season fescue. Yeah. They tend to put on their spurt of growth in the spring and the summer, or it's spring and fall. That's how you tell a cool season lawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, for best health of the lawn they should be mowed high your mower should be on the highest setting so you're not scalping it
2: yeah fescues have a high growing point and so if you cut them down really short and by short i mean less than 2 inches mm-hmm. uh, and we get a spell of hot weather they're going to thin out real badly uh, we see this all the time they're going to really stress
1: not only that but the taller blades also shade the ground more and help conserve so- uh, soil moisture right. and that's important for the overall health and it helps that lawn send roots even deeper. This is a good thing. However, there are so many landscaping mow-and-blow companies out there that I'm sure they don't readjust their lawnmowers between each lawn. They have it set on Bermuda grass level.
2: Or bluegrass. Yeah, the old old, old lawns used to be bluegrass ryegrass blends. That was very common in the 80s. and They could be mowed shorter. Even still, we didn't recommend short mowing in the summer. Hot weather, mowing short, fescues, that's asking for trouble. Yeah, exactly. So especially in the summer, I'd rather have you not mow during a heat wave than mow it short.
1: Please tell the people to tell their landscapers, set your mower at its highest setting. Highest
2: setting you can. Three inches would be great because that way you won't be cutting those growing points. Your grass won't thin out. You're going to be causing problems on the appearance of the lawn if you mow it too short, especially in hot weather. It's going to thin out real badly. Yep.
1: All right. You ready for some Garden Grappler? Sure. All right. Ray and Danville, you've got bougainvilleas and sunflowers on your mind. I wonder if you have any water uh, tools on your mind.
3: Well, I'm going to go. I hear that the almonds are now being watered with is it called a micro sprinkler something like that yes. to save yeah. water yeah there
2: you micro, go. micro mi, sprinklers mini sprinklers micro yeah. sprinklers they work great Don't
3: give away answers don
2: sorry okay <laughs> micro sprinklers good answer yep all right and they run them for a long yeah. time Mike,
1: Let me do, tell you, you. do you need ray's uh information do you have it all or uh, he doesn't know
2: <laughs> yes. Don't hang up.
1: Yeah, basically, don't hang up, Ray. Yeah, they so run. Those, now let me your... tell
2: you something. I'm surrounded by almond orchards and walnut orchards, and they run those anywhere from 18 to 36 hours to get wow. a really good soaking. I was asking my How neighbor often? Uh, about every 10 days is what it looks yeah. like. My neighbor who has walnuts, I was watching him last summer, and he was yeah. running for almost 30 at least 24 hours and I flagged him down. I said, what are you, what are you aiming for here? We're trying to get a three foot depth of watering. Now they don't do that every time, but they really run them for a long time. And it's great because those put out water slowly. It soaks in, they can get a really good penetration. They can store that water. For days, and then they don't have to water again for a while. Yep. Anyway, what's so, your other question? But questions?
1: basically, uh, Ray, what you've won for being calling number one and saying micro sprinkler, which is a good answer, I have for you uh, the Farmer Fred Tomato Troubleshooter Guide, along with from uh, the UCIPM folks, their guide for controlling ants. Okay.
3: Awesome. Thank right. you. Sure.
1: Now, you you have questions.
3: Yes. Okay. So, my wife, uh, she's not listening, which is good. Okay, yeah.
1: uh, I understand. <laughs>
3: He went down to Capitola and said, Look what they can grow. And uh, it's the Bougainvillea, which Mm -hmm. does look beautiful, but we get cold weather in Danville. So. Um, is it a matter of just covering it up for literally two months at a time? The first the first winter.
2: I live out in the country where I get colder than people in town. It's taken me four Bougainvilleas to get one established. I went through three where I didn't cover them sufficiently. Now I finally have one that got through its first winter. It now has woody Stems, and I'm on my uh, way. That's the key. Is okay. the first winter is the most difficult. Once there's wood, even if the whole top gets killed back to stems or stumps, it'll resprout. But that first winter, when it's still soft wood, I've, well, I've lost three in a row before I finally got one to establish. In Danville, you get cold, uh, cold enough. And all I did for this one was I put it in the right microclimate, which is close to the house on a southeast corner. And I have frost blanket at the ready to drape over it on nights that are unusually cold. And I would just take that off once that cold spell has passed.
1: Could you treat it as a uh, herbaceous perennial?
2: Well, that's kind of what happens. It yeah. just depends on how cold we get. You can expect some dieback, and uh, and don't rush to take it out when you get all the leaves blackened and it looks terrible. Yeah. They'll resprout once there's woody stem there. That first winter is the is the key.
3: Do you like thorns, yeah. Ray?
2: Yeah, they're kind of thorny.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> well,
2: it's, she does. Uh, it. <laughs>
3: unfortunately, we don't need to look. We don't need to touch it. It's just going to be on uh, against the house. So that okay, oh, good. We'll make, we'll if it's going it to be against on. the
1: house, you're going to be touching it.
2: I put I pruned. I grew up in San Diego. I pruned a lot of bougainvilleas. Just be prepared for the thorns there they're just that Ah. goes with the territory but it's i think they're worth it but you got to find that right corner of the house where it's warmer in the winter and prepare to cover that first winter especially
3: and you had a sunflower question yes so something is eating the lower limbs of my (laughs) sunflower plants and um it's not a deer and Mm -hmm. it's not and it skeletonizes
2: so Pretty funny. It,
3: it 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 is, and it's. I came out one night to check. Is it a worm?
2: Well, we got anything. this. We we got this question over on the other show, and I allowed us how it sounded like caterpillars, and we've got three very yes. nice listeners who sent us notes that said probably finches, finches, <laughs> yes. which I hadn't even thought of. So yes, yeah. little birds. Yeah, little birds are doing it. So you're making a nice uh, little salad bar for them.
1: Yeah. Yep. Say, well, Ray, you're okay. doing this on purpose, aren't you? <laughs> so Why aren't they going after the top leaves? They, maybe they're making a nest. I don't know. It's like uh, well, it's hard to say what they're doing with the leaves.
2: It's probably there's more cover down there. Would yeah. be my guess. I'm not a bird expert, but my yeah. guess would be they feel safer right. down there.
1: Hey, Ray, I'm going to put you on hold so Mike can get all your Thank information, you. and we'll, for we'll send you all that stuff. So good job there. All right, so Ray is back on hold,
2: and his and, answer was
1: micro sprinkler okay micro sprinkler so there's plenty more good answers yep. when mike gets a chance we'll take a break and when we come back we will uh, get to answers two three four and five in today's garden grappler name an irrigation method but be specific Nine one six five seven six fifteen seventy eight 1578 or eight six six three three one eight two five five. this guy in the next room needs a raise it's get growing on talk 650 kste
0: temperatures are rising You are listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman.
1: We are in the midst of the garden grappler, getting an answer or five to the question, name an irrigation method. Ray and Danville told us micro sprinklers. He did a good job there because drip irrigation, of which micro sprinklers belong, drip irrigation, that answer is just too general. I wouldn't accept that. Micro sprinklers, though, good answer. Don't say sprinklers. Say what kind of water delivery system that sprinkler is they have names and there's other methods for irrigating so name an irrigation method 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255 who's been on hold the longest it looks like it edie thank you thank you mysterious (laughs) voice in my head (laughs) all right edie in sacramento voice to you mysterious voice hi edie how are you I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Okay. Do you want my question first? Oh, give me an answer first, and let's get that out of the way.
3: All right. How about a soaker hose? That's what I use.
2: Yes, excellent answer. All right,
1: Very soaker useful. hose. Good answer, yes. As long as you don't string too many of them together. Right. And they plug up after a while, but they're cheap. There is a way to unplug them, and that is at the end of the season, you fill a wheelbarrow that doesn't leak, With a combination of water and vinegar, Mm -hmm. all right, you let that hose soak in that solution overnight, and then the next day you put on some good gloves, some good vinyl gloves, and then you squeeze the entire hose from one (laughs) end to the other, and then hook it up to a faucet and flush out all the impurities. And then hang it up for the winter. And then hang it up for the winter.
2: Okay. Hmm. Okay. Okay, thank you. Cleaning a soaker hose. Fred Hoffman's (laughs) tip for the day.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I have a question for Don. He sounds like a water expert. I put in a Daphne plant six weeks ago. Now, everybody says, oh, don't give it water. It hates water. So I have not watered it.
2: Well, you just put in six weeks ago you need to water it because it's still trying to get its roots out of the nursery soil into your native soil. Okay, then
3: what do I do? Do I put a little drip on it? I would,
2: well, personally, if it were mine, I would hand water it because, you know, you'd be watering more thoroughly. I'd make a little basin and I'd fill that up and really give it a good soaking every few days, maybe once a week if your soil is accommodating of that. If you're going to use a dripper, uh, you better have a fairly high output and do it as infrequently as you can. Uh, without stressing the plant. That's the common answer with Daphne. Water as deeply as you can and then as infrequently as you can without seriously stressing the plant. So if you're in your soil, can you can go a week between waterings with a really good soaking. That may be just about right for something like a Daphne. They're famous for dying from watering too often. Yes. That's the most common reason for killing a Daphne, is that the fungus, the, the, the organism that sets in at the crown, the Phytophthora, because you've kept it too damp. So if that surface can go dry a little bit between waterings, that's your your high, that's the way to have success with Daphne.
3: Well, the, the soil where I am is yeah. that river bottom soil. Good.
2: good and it good. really
3: doesn't take as much water on anything as maybe you would elsewhere.
2: Right. You're, it drains fast is what you're telling me, so that's good for a Daphne. Uh, make a nice, I would just rather, for mine, I'd make a basin around the plant about three foot across with a little you know, mounds of dirt on the on the edge of it so you can really flood that, give it a good soaking, fill up that basin every few days. That's probably going to be your best way to water it for this first summer.
3: And if it dies, I'm going to call you.
2: Now call Fred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, blame me. I I get all the blame. You know, whenever I sell a Daphne, I feel like having this long conversation with people. I think there's about a 50-50 success rate, and that's probably being optimistic because they're so easy to overwater. That's how I've killed mine. Every time I've killed one, it's been establishing well. I've planted something nearby it. I have to water that new something, and I overwater the Daphne.
1: 80. Good answer with the soaker hose. I think I'm going to put you back on hold so Mike can get all your pertinent information, and I'll be sending you uh, the caller number two prize, which is the Farmer Fred tomato. Troubleshooter and the UCIPM information on controlling ants. So that'll be. He cool. has
3: my information. Okay. Cool. Oh, he does that. Oh, good.
2: I'm glad. Hey. I'll go away now. Thanks, Edie. And Thank you. Got, you got, all right.
1: Bye bye. And you
5: got
2: the free tip on how to clean a soaker hose.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Lynn and Alta, go ahead and if you have an answer, give us an answer. If you have a question, give us a question. Hi, Lynn. Lynn. Oh. Lynn. Gave I'm sorry. A, hello. Oh, hello, Lynn. Lynn. Okay. Yeah. Sorry Hi. to wake you up.
7: No, it was.
1: Yeah. I know you were making another Bloody Mary. Okay, fine.
7: I okay. <laughs> so, never mind. Anyway, all right, never um, mind. interestingly, I have another question about a Daphne. Mm. Uh, so we went away for a week, and I had an individual watering the house water, not the house,
6: right? Yeah. The
7: plants, and I have a Daphne in about a ten-gallon pot. And the dork forgot to water <laughs> it. And okay. so the leaves are dry, but the dried and shriveled. But the, um, the limbs are still, Firm. they're not dry and cracking. Okay.
1: They don't break when you try to bend them. So
2: that's good news. So it cracks. got too little water. It yeah. shed its leaves. That's much better news than if yeah. dork had watered it twice a day and rotted it because that would be irretrievable. My guess is resume watering correctly, and it'll put out some new growth.
1: Should that first watering be a really thorough you need, watering? You need
2: to make sure you're getting the soil moist in any event, because whatever soil mix they use, if it's become so dry that water just runs off the side, uh, then it's not doing any good. So if, if that's uncommon, but if they've used a high peat moss, for high quar mix, that can be an issue. So make sure you water thoroughly until it runs all the way through, then poke your finger in and make sure it actually really hydrated.
1: And make sure and, water's coming out the bottom.
2: And coming out the bottom. And I, I'll bet you that you can save this plant. This is a rare case where a Daphne might survive.
5: All right.
2: So, well, so
7: uh, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, it's a couple years old. And yeah, yeah, that's a shame.
1: Yep. So Lynn, go ahead, and give <laughs> us an answer here. Name an, a method of irrigation.
7: Okay, this is silly because when you when you ask the question, <laughs> I was actually out in the what north forty, south forty?
6: Right.
7: I was really in the north uh, two and a half. Anyway, <laughs> I put a gallon of water in with a little poker. Oh. I poke a hole in a gallon of water,
1: mm-hmm.
7: and it drips out.
1: Ah. Okay, so you have like a gallon container. So you have a, whatever that's called, a tufa?
2: Sure. You're using a. Called. you're using a slow drip out of a receptacle
1: yes like a, a bucket with a hole in it <laughs> a bucket if i may quote hank yes. williams yes. yes so we'll just say a bucket no, well a...
7: but it was pretty funny when you asked the question while yeah. i was on hold and yeah.
1: i thought oh no yeah, well, no that works i know a lot of people that do that they'll take yeah. a five gallon white bucket and have a hole in it and fill that bucket up yeah. and set it next to a tree
2: we'll take bucket with a hole in it
1: yeah Thanks. so th- that'll work
2: all right so lynn i'll send you all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> we'll be humming that song for the rest day. of the day.
1: Did, <laughs> so did Mike get all your information?
7: He did. Okay. Good. good.
1: All right. I know. I I know where to find you.
2: Okay. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks. All right. Thank bye bye.
7: I think I actually drove by you down in Folsom the other day. When you were riding on your bike. Oh, well, pull him over that, and av- well, that's
2: possible. Pull over and ask him for gardening advice. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I
3: almost
7: did, but
1: yeah. never interrupt me on my bike. All right. All right. all right. all right. Thanks, all right. Lynn. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks, Lynn. Bye bye. All right. Donna, and I don't know where Donna is. Where is Donna?
3: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. I hope you're uh, hearing me okay. We hear you My fine, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Uh,
1: Donna, where, where
3: Donna, where are you? In
1: Merced. Thank you. Okay, oh, wow. good. All right. Okay. Got it. All right. So name an okay. irrigation method that isn't a micro sprinkler, a soaker hose, or a bucket with a hole in it.
7: All right, this little guy looks like a little tractor that crawls along the lawn uh, okay, on yes. the uh, on the hose. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've seen them. great, and he's using the power of the water to yes. move across.
2: Yes. Exactly. Yeah, okay. That
1: would be a
0: tractor water. Lawn tractor water. Oh, yes, we'll go tra- with that. We're getting great descriptions <laughs> yes. today. Tractor so. water. You folks
2: are really creative out there. This is great. Yes, Those are great. Right. They, they cover an area not perfectly evenly, but they allow you to cover a pretty good sized territory. And as long as you run them long enough, make sure they're putting out enough water, they yes. do a good
1: job. I think it's called a hillbilly Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Okay. All right.
1: But it works. All right.
2: Lawn tractor. Got it.
1: Donna, good answer. Thank you. Thank you. All right. She's caller number four. And caller number five is Susan in Woodland. Hi, Susan. Hi. So I'm doing fine. So, Susan, if you can come up with a fifth method of irrigation that isn't a micro sprinkler a soaker hose a bucket with a hole in it or a hillbilly tractor waterer <laughs> i i have for you what do we have for oh uh, this is a valuable little book it's one of my favorite resources from dave wilson nursery the variety and rootstock description oh book my. That's that great. that is i mean if you yep. like fruit and nut trees and yep. vines this has the information you need and it's great
6: okay. let's
1: see so go ahead and give us a irrigation method
6: well one is the Emitter. mm-hmm,
1: okay, okay, well, all right, okay, give us another one. I
6: have another
1: I bet you do <laughs> and there's a lot of drip irrigation type systems, and the only one mentioned so far really it was micro sprinkler, yeah yeah
6: oh, okay, um well, I don't know if that's micro. The sprayers
1: I use in the yard—I'm not sure. Okay, spray. Okay, go with sprayers in the yard. Uh, Is it like a? Or
6: I can say those fields. It drips stuff they use with the rollers.
2: Oh I, yeah. Okay. Now here's a Yolo County person. Clearly, uh, where they're irrigating fields, you're talking about those kind of rolled through the fields of canning tomatoes, and they're watering the whole thing.
1: Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, these are
2: right. these are. Uh, Impulse sprinklers on wheels.
1: Yes, impulse sprinklers on <laughs> wheels. And they're Got impressive, it. let me yes, tell they you. Are.
2: they put out a lot of water. Some of them go in a straight line, some go in a circle. That's right. Yeah, That's right, right. yeah. yeah. You, can always, you can always tell your listeners from the egg side of the valley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right.
1: Hey, Susan, good answers. So I'll be sending you the Dave Wilson Nursery Variety and Rootstock Description Book, and we have to run here.
6: Oh, I have one question. Uh, okay.
2: Put it on hold.
1: Go ahead. No, we can't go on hold. You have to go to work, yep. and I have to talk to... Uh, uh, the okay. people that dealt the turf. Uh, go ahead, Susan, and uh, give us a question.
6: Uh, just about if you recommend that. I mean, is it sturdy? Does it hold up?
1: Well, recommend what?
6: Artificial grass.
1: Oh. oh. I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I think if you want a putting green, it's a great idea.
2: Yeah, I'm not a big fan because they don't cool the air and they have um,
1: VOC emissions. Th- yeah, they
2: are actually not, they have, they're not real environmentally friendly. But in, yeah. as he mentioned, if there's a place where you want a very low-maintenance, but in green, it is suitable. Yeah. And, and there are some amazing-looking turfs out there. There
1: are huh? some good-quality artificial turfs out there that you'd be hard-pressed to say, that's not grass. Uh, and it does remain cool in the summertime. And just So just avoid the cheap stuff, yeah. if you would, and just go with the more expensive stuff.
6: I'm more concerned that my gardener has not been able, as many times as he adjusts my sprinkler, Right. To avoid having all these brown spots and well, i don't mean spots i mean big areas big areas yeah, down, yeah. yeah. well
2: maybe it's time to think about and this would be a great topic for fred to take on for another program okay r- lawn replacement ideas that,
3: write that
1: down
2: yeah <laughs> we'll write that down and he'll be a, a great suggestion turf substitute turf substitutes hey how
1: about this Coming up, as soon as you get out of this building, Don, I'll be mm-hmm. talking to the folks down at Delta Bluegrass about, about turf substitutes. About, about
2: low-water turf yes, options. Yes. And then I do happen to have, I'm going to throw a personal plug in here, redwoodbarn.com. My me? website has articles about ground covers that are good substitutes for a Oh, I thought, redwoodbarn.com.
1: I thought you said plug is a joke, sort of a pun. <laughs> <That's> a good, <laughs> right. good segue. Thank you very All much. Right. Thanks, Susan. Bye. Okay, good job. All right. And Don Shore, thanks for spending a little yep. bit of time with us this all Sunday morning. Open. He's uh, going, I bet right now you're going to find your way back to uh, Redwood Barn Nursery on 5th Street.
2: That's correct, where it, we open at noon and sell all kinds of cool flowers at this time of year.
1: 1607 5th Street yep. in Davis. Thank you, Don.
2: You're open seven days a week. We're open 362 days a year. Which three do you think were closed?
1: Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's. New Year's. Okay. That's it. Wow. All
2: right. all right. Great to be here. Thanks.
1: He's a working fool. All right. When we come back, uh, as I threatened before, we'll be talking with Delta Bluegrass about turf substitutes. Coming up on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.
0: If you're drinking... Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman.
1: Well, with the drought returning, it means people are going to have to watch their watering. Heavy fines may be coming down for all that water that goes down the gutter. And a lot of people want to know, well, I want something that looks like a turf but uses less water. Well, there just might be some uh, products available. We're talking with Ed Zuckerman, one of the owners of Delta Bluegrass Company in Stockton. And Ed, let's talk about some of your uh, typical turf substitutes that you carry now that are uh, being installed in landscapes throughout Northern
4: California. Sure. Thanks, Fred. Um, Ten, 12 years ago, we started uh, a line of California native grasses, which uh, have an ET factor of at least 0. 05 um and they're they're doing very well they're they're performing as advertised and uh, they're growing in favor as water awareness around the state is again coming to the forefront before you go on explain to people what an ET rating of 5 means or point 0.5 point 0.5 means uh, it's it's basically ET is evapotranspiration and one being turf grass or or 100% of evapotranspiration, giving the plant exactly what it needs. Uh, Some plants, uh, and we're looking for plants and grasses that that perform well at less than optimum ET of 1.0. So when I say 0.5 or 0.6, it does well on about half the water that uh, you would normally apply. So in many parts of the Central Valley during the summertime, the average uh,
1: evapotranspiration per week is about two inches. So these turf substitutes could get
4: by on on one inch of water a week. You're spot on. You're spot on. Of course, new plantings always take a little bit more water to establish. But once established, our biggest challenge has been to have people not water too much.
1: Now, you have a couple of mow-free varieties. You've got a native one. And a non-native one, what's
4: the difference between the two as far as their growth pattern or adaptability? Well, in the native Mofri, um, the native varieties are varieties that have been around California in their native states since before 1830. That's the the common definition. Um, In our conventional Mofri, uh, they're all a mix of, of fine fescues. But uh, fine fes- fescues in our native mow-free are unimproved native plants. Um, the the varieties in our conventional mow-free are improved varieties that have been that have been bred uh, in in different different breeding programs around the country.
1: And what is their ET rating? And how tall do they get? And how often do they have to be mowed, if at all?
4: Well, one of the one of the beauties of having a mow-free Grass is that many people don't mow them at all, and when you have all of that, all of that uh, grass material, think of think of a grass blade as a solar cell. Uh, they become a very drought tolerant uh, and don't require a whole lot of water. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but when you don't mow it, it seems to uh, have enough build build up of carbohydrates in the roots and plant structures to withstand uh, severe drought. And it doesn't grow that tall either, does it? No, it grows up three to five inches and then kind of lays over in, in a nice metal-like look. Uh, we've, we've carefully blended uh, the mofree blends with um, different types of tall fescues so you don't get one look. We have a creeping tall fescue, we have a, a bunch-type tall fescue, and then we have a regular, like a Molotti uh, blue fescue that, that kind of uh, gives the turf... Uh, Basically, once it's, once it's growing, it looks kind of like a, a green ocean. The, one of the, other, of the other differences, I
1: think, between the non-native and the native Mofri, isn't one of them more tolerant of shade?
4: Um, I would think that they're all, they're all tolerant of shade. Uh, and there again, they're more tolerant of shade, uh, do better in shade in an unmowed state because it can capture that much more light that's available. No real turf grass, no cool season turf grass, uh, even t- even uh, fine leaf fescues do well in much, much more than uh, or much less than uh, 40% sun. So if you if you're trying to grow turf in less than 40% sun, uh, it's going to be a challenge. Or you have to tolerate a little bit of thinning out. Exactly, those big trees that
1: are overwhelming the landscape, maybe it's time for a trim. Correct. All right. Now, there's something else in the uh, Delta Bluegrass arsenal now for people who want a uh, turf substitute, something that's going to use less water but can take traffic and looks
4: nice. And uh, you're now on the Carapia bandwagon. Right. We have been for quite a while. We've had it in our research plots for uh, at least five years. I saw this uh, plant material in a uh, drought field day at UC Riverside and was very impressed with it. Uh, contacted the breeder and the uh, the owner of the variety and started growing it in our test plots, and have had it, and we really like what we saw. Uh, it's very very drought tolerant. It lends itself to a sod product, so we harvest it just like regular turf. Uh, but it is a broadleaf, and uh, it's interesting looking. It's a actually it's a sterile form of of Lippia nataflora, uh, which some people consider to be very invasive, um, and it kind of fell out of favor years ago in California, but since it's since this particular type is not as sterile, it doesn't really have the spreading effect that uh, the, the older Nodafloris had. Now, for those who may be
1: wondering about uh, the spelling of Carapia, we are saying Carapia, despite what you may be thinking. It's K-U-R-A-P-I-A. And uh, how much traffic uh, can
4: it take, and uh, how much watering does it need? Well, the traffic aspect of it is, is probably, uh, its probably probably—it's very low maintenance. It, it doesn't tolerate a great deal of traffic, although we've got it planted outside uh, our office in kind of a test plot, and a lot of our workforce walk across it every day. Uh, one of the nice things about it, uh, even where it does, where you do have wear spots, it grows back very quickly. It's a very dense, um, very dense foliage, and uh, during the summer growing months, grows back very quickly. The water requirements are as good as native sod, and at least 0.5, 0.6 of ET once it's established, which means. Uh, you know, we tell people to water it maybe once a week once it's established in the summertime. In the summertime, and um, it seems to do very, very well. The roots will go down and get the water, and uh, it's gaining a lot of favor. Um, uh, people are uh, currently we're we're sold out and waiting for new crop to come in.
1: Well, now, let's point out, though, that it does flower, and those
4: flowers attract bees, but there's some ways around that if you don't want the bees, right? Correct. Uh, a lot of people, especially in, I'll say, industrial or commercial applications, uh, will let the flowers go, and it does attract bees. There's a, just a, a, a plethora of, of flowers between May and September, uh, and you will have a lot of bees, but if you have young children or, or, or are allergic to bees... Uh, a weekly mowing uh, takes care of that virtually 99% of the flowers uh, are, are kept kept to a minimum or are gone with, with a regular mowing. Now for those who want to attract bees and they want to grow Carapia, what's the eventual height of it? It will grow two to three inches and is very low growing. So it really doesn't look like a, uh, uh, it, it'll kind of keep a lawn type look. Uh, and then, uh, you know, before, before the—it uh, uh, doesn't do well. One of the things that—one of the drawbacks of it, it doesn't do well in uh, temperatures below, say, 17 degrees. And if you have temperatures that freeze hard, like we don't recommend it for the Sierras, uh, but we've had, we've had temperatures below 20 degrees uh, on our farm, and uh, although it burns, burns the foliage back a little bit, uh, it grows back very quickly uh, when on, with the onset of spring temperatures.
1: Is Carapia primarily for
4: full sun environments? Full sun, partial sun. I, I would say that uh, I have it uh, in my backyard under a Japanese maple, and uh, although in the very shadiest areas, what happens is it thins out and the leaves on it get much larger, kind of typical of a of a broadleaf plant. So it's trying to capture all the available sunlight. So uh, I would say it's moderately successful, probably just as successful as turf grass would be under a under a, uh, a very shady environment. With a lot less watering and a lot less care. A lot less, yeah. Della Bluegrass, based
1: in Stockton, they sell sod and seed to a lot of your favorite nurseries. You can uh, look for them online at deltabluegrass.com and uh, look into their mow-free native and uh, non-native mow-free turf substitutes that use a lot less water. And they can take traffic as well, can't they? Oh, sure. Yes. All right. They do very well. Ed Zuckerman, one of the owners of Delta Bluegrass. Nice to see you. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.
0: It's official. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. One more reminder
1: about the heat that's coming our way. Yes, it's going to be warm today, 95 to 100, depending upon where you live. But there is an excessive heat watch in effect for most of the Sacramento Valley and much of the San Joaquin Valley from Tuesday afternoon through Thursday evening. They're expecting daytime highs to range from the upper 90s and some of the cooler areas by the Delta to 105 to 110 in the northern and central Sacramento Valley overnight lows in the upper 70s for many locations and remember that long outdoor exposure may increase chances for heat related illness for sensitive groups so basically you're going to want to work early in the yard on on Tuesday through Thursday for that excessive heat watch drink plenty of fluids you know stay in an air-conditioned room stay out of the sun check up on relatives and neighbors for that excessive heat watch Tuesday afternoon through Thursday evening. So it's July in Sacramento. What did you expect? It's just the way it is. And uh, the weather forecast, long-range weather forecast, fair through October. All right. Uh, What's going on in the way of garden activities? Let's run through the list out at the State Fair today. If you're going to the State Fair between now and the end of the run of the State Fair at the end of the month, you got to go behind Buildings B and C and visit the farm At the farm, it's a showcase of more than 70 agricultural commodities that grow here in California. Beautiful display, beautiful low-water-use gardens as well. And then somewhere tucked over there next to the farm, maybe somewhere near where the master gardeners are answering gardening questions, you're going to find friend of the show, Steve Zion, from Living Resources Company, banging metal, so to speak. He's at the Blacksmith Experience at the State Fair, And he's out there today until 8 o'clock, pounding metal in front of a 3,000-degree forge. So count your blessings that you're not Steve Zion today. And then on Thursday, uh, Steve will be uh, addressing the Sacramento Chrysanthemum Society's monthly meeting, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center at 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. He is going to be talking about the soil and uh, I guess how to grow uh, good chrysanthemums in the soil, and just it's just a good general soil talk, and the public is invited. It is free, and again Thursday evening, 6:30 to 8:30 p.m. The uh, master food preservers over in El Dorado County have a class on making jams and jellies Thursday evening from six to eight o'clock. That'll be in Placerville at 311 Fair Lane. That's the Ag Building there, and it is a free demonstration, and it's always a perennial family favorite. It's easy. And so tasty, too, making jams and jellies out of what you grew in the backyard. All right, coming up next weekend, 28th and 29th, the Sacramento Bromeliad and Carnivorous Society show and sale going on at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center, 3330 McKinley Boulevard. And that, too, is free. What else is going on? Uh, Let's see, over in Calaveras County. The Demonstration Garden is open next Saturday from 10 until 1. If you live down that way at 891 Mountain Ranch Road in San Andreas at the Government Center, you can visit their Demonstration Garden and learn a lot about succulents, which is the focus of this month's talk from 10 until 1 o'clock. And that's uh, next Saturday down there in San Andreas. All right, what else is going on? Harvest Day, August 4th. It's a Saturday. Best Garden Event in Sacramento. It's free It happens at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center on Fair Oaks Boulevard, south of Madison, in Fair Oaks Park, next to the library. It's the ultimate garden event every year in our area, and it just brings together the best of the best of uh, everybody who knows anything about gardening. And you're going to see some interesting exhibits, a lot of great vendors, a lot of great informational booths, mini talks on bees, succulents, vineyard pests, worm composting. I'll be uh, talking to the crowd at 8.30 uh, that Saturday morning on August the 4th about time-saving tips for the garden. And there'll be a lot of other great speakers, too, including Quentin Young, a friend of the show from uh, Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery, and he's going to be talking about unusual vegetables that you can grow here. So that'll be coming up again August 4th. Um, Mark it on your calendar. It goes on from 8 until 2 o'clock. You're going to get some great ideas for your own garden when you tour the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center Just some great ideas about backyard orchard culture, about how much fruit you can actually pick on a tree that's only six feet tall. Yeah, they got that there. Beautiful, water-efficient landscapes, beautiful vegetable gardens, compost displays, vineyards, and a lot, lot more. And that's going on again on August 4th. All right. Coming up next, it's the KSTE Farm Hour. Boy, if the phrase whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting wasn't true, it, it certainly is true now. And there's a lot of uh, water fighting going on in California in ag circles, and we're going to be talking about some of those problems going on on the KSTE Farm Hour, Crop Reports as well. That's coming up next right after the news. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be talking vegetables and harvest day with some Sacramento County Master Gardeners on this show. Hope you can join us. And don't forget, the show is available as a podcast at KSTE.com, iHeartRadio app, or your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. I appreciate you listening all these years. We'll do it again next
3: week. Bye-bye.